Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. All right, welcome back, folks. This week I have with me Stuart Clark. Stuart, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm Stuart Clark. I live in the United Kingdom. I'm a senior um, developer advocate. Um, I'm also an author. I've f- published my first book this year um, under the Cisco Press banner for one of the um, certifications. I, I develop um, code and generally try to keep out of trouble as best as I can. Um, but yeah, I love being a developer advocate. Awesome. So you spent a long time at Cisco working there with their program, right? I did. Yeah. So I I, I did 10 years in total at Cisco. Um, it was only meant to be 12 weeks. Oh, wow. And ended up staying 10 years. Um, so started as a contractor, just as a what they call a web badge, doing some stuff with uh, um, for IPv6. The contract rolled over a couple of times, and then they asked me to to uh, move to full-time employment. Uh, yeah, and, and ended up um, doing a lot of stuff around network engineering, architecture, which then led me to, to do a lot of network automation. And then I became a developer advocate kind of five years ago. And then more recently, I moved to AWS. Well, that's exciting. So <clears throat> you had a lot of uh, experience in networking space, and that's kind of why we wanted to talk to you. We haven't had any like networking folks on the show before. So this is new territory for us. And excited to, to learn everything that, that you've experienced about production networks and what happens and why is it always BGP that's the problem? <laughs> yeah, why is it always BGP? And people always, when the network goes down, people always say, well, it must be DNS. Um, but, you know, a lot of the outages recently that we've seen have been, you know, BGP. BGP is, is very, very, it's kind of like... Um, Uh, I want to use the term, it's like Marmite. So in the UK, we have this spread and there's the same with Marmite. And and you kind of tend to put it on on toast and it's it's made from yeast. And there's a saying around Marmite. And the reason I say Marmite is because the saying with Marmite is you either love it or you hate it. Mm -hmm. It is just one of those things. And BGP is exactly like that. One small mistake will have catastrophic outcomes and issues. You know, the recent one which made the news um, about a year ago, exactly about a year ago, was the one which occurred for um, uh, Facebook. Mm -hmm. And it was so severe that according to their outage and their uh, CLCA and and their their outage report is that it, it locked them out of meeting rooms. It locked them out of the data center where they needed to get in to send an engineer in with a, you know, a console cable um, to actually fix it because it was tied to a device which had something to do with their DNS. That was just a one simple line mistake that will cause that. And as we'll probably, you know, discover more as we keep talking, how networks are incredibly fragile. Yes. Comes to, you know, mistakes like, like that, the cascading domino effect can have huge ramifications globally, completely globally. Yeah, it's definitely that happens. And like you sit back and you wonder, like, how does the internet work at all some days? It's like a weather, it's weather patterns. It's like so crazy 
the interconnectedness and how dependent everything is, like you say, on like a one line change has this snowball effect across so many layers of of the systems. And then you look back and like, oh, well, we, d- we decided we're going to distribute even more stuff and like, let's go for it, man. So, oh, my God. I love following the 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 BGP Twitter feed that Cisco has and like every now and then some weird thing will pop up like somebody's stolen a subnet or like some other weird thing has happened and you're like okay is that going to be is that good bad or indifferent is is it as the start of something horrible <laughs> yeah yeah and a lot of these go back as far as you know one of the bigger ones happened in 2008 when a state-owned telecommunications company managed to cut YouTube completely off off the web completely off the web and you can replay a lot of these things with like tools like bgp play and you can actually see like you said in a weather map was a really good way of connecting there you could automatically see by using bgp play like a wipe atlas or something like that the traffic just switching direction changing kind of like a, a storm as it all sort of like starts to converge or head into you know, this particular subnet or this this ASN, and, you know, then it just becomes unreachable. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly amazing. BGP Mon, which was um, built by a – which is now owned by Cisco, was built by um, a gentleman called Andre Tunk, um, a Dutch guy. Um, he was one of the original engineers at OpenDNS. Andre is a fantastic engineer. Um, he's one of the – to be honest, I think he's one of the – leading experts in BGP in the world. Um, you know, when you ever see any of these BGP hijacks, he's one of the people who's kind of commenting on it, one of, you know, many of the experts in the field, certainly. And um, he, he created BGP Mon. It was, it was his kind of one of his many sort of side projects, which was um, acquired by um, OpenDNS, which was then acquired by Cisco. I'm going to make some notes. We'll, we'll, I'll put links to a bunch of this stuff in the show notes for folks. So if you're interested in looking some of this up, some of it, yeah, is absolutely fascinating stuff that's gone on over the years. So you mentioned you work in network automation, and that feels like a potentially scary place to automate network stuff when, when you feel like, okay, you're maybe one line from a potential catastrophic failure. Yeah. How do folks go about that? How do you think about automating networks in safe ways? Carefully, I think is the is the first. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like that uh, Spider Man saying, and I'm I'm guilty of using this in many many speaking um, opportunities that I've had. Is that you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, like we were saying about how one line can take down entire data centers, or you know, can cause you know big outages. As soon as you start doing that with automation, you're no longer just inputting this onto a single command line into one box and going kind of box by box, you know, the go in the box by box method. If you're making a, you know, a change and say you're doing it on 10 devices and they're all in your data centers and you're, you know, going east to west, just making the changes, you might start to get some alerts if you've done something incorrect, you know, you're going box by box. And, and this has certainly happened to me that, you know, I'm midway through making the changes. I've got 20 devices I need to add additional configuration to. And then by the time I get to kind of box five or six, I start getting alerts or somebody kind of messages you or calls you and says, hey, we've got reachability issues. This isn't working. 
something happens like that and you go, okay, and, you know, you start to roll back that change. Mm-hmm. So you kind of go, back, you know, back to box five and back to box four and back to, box, you know, as part of your, you know, your change procedure. Obviously, with automation, you're scripting this out. Now, there's a number of ways of doing this, simple bash scripts, which, you know, we've done for, you know, decades now yeah. to be able to do this. And then using other things or other tools, programmatic more tools, you know, generally a lot of stuff is run over SSH and you might be doing changes with things like Ansible or Python, you know, Python libraries such as you know, NetMeco, uh, Napalm's another good one, PyAt, PyATS, the powerful library, you know, and you're making all these changes, you know, like I said, typically over SSH into the devices and you're altering the state of the running configuration immediately. You are then potentially going to break all 20 devices at once because you'll take that single change from your local machine and you will push it straight out to all of those devices. And if that change, you know, is missing something, could be missing a VLAN, could be missing a subnet, you know, it could be missing one line of code or one line of configuration, you've just pushed it out to 20 devices. If you haven't got any out of band on those, you could cut yourself off from devices. And then, you know, all those devices become isolated. I can certainly attest to that. That's happened to me a number of times. Um, when changing things like security policies, access lists, you know, anything that will, you know, cut you off from the box or anything to do with the management IP. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, I think, where people kind of steered away from it. Certainly, in my experience, one of the teams I was working on wanted to do things via automation because doing things via hand going box by box and the constant sort of firefighting was causing outages. And we know that the majority of outages are just caused by human error. Yeah. It's 98%, especially in networks. We wanted to start using automation, but with that becomes this kind of really steep learning curve where you start experiencing outages because you're pushing these at scale and a lot of devices you're automatically pushing it straight into the to the winning configuration. So the changes happen immediately. There's no kind of save it and there's no validation on the device. And sometimes with automation, if you know you can be really caught up with things like white spaces or gaps or something like that. And only a part of the configuration is is attached and then the other parts aren't. So if you're putting in a string of you know, numbers or something like that, and then you've got a comma or colon in the wrong place, half of that's cut off. And then all of a sudden, 50% of your change has taken and the other 50% has gone, the box has kind of thrown up a question mark or, you know, what we call, you know, the, the, uh, a carrot, the little pointy up. Thing, oh, yeah. You know, and it, you know, it basically says, yeah, I've got no idea what you're talking about here. And then, you know, you're kind of left, with partially configured devices and something that isn't working. So, yeah, that's the hardest part. Yeah, and, like, when you think about, like, how many organizations out there really need to be running their own very large networks, like, we talked about Facebook earlier. Obviously, the the big players have their own network configurations, and they're doing that stuff. Do mere mortals really need to be working on this stuff or should we leave this to our, our transit providers? Um, so it depends where you are within, you know, the organization. I mean, certainly, you know, this is why when you're dealing with, you know, things like BGP that service providers now put in 
guidelines and rules and security to stop some of the things you know that we've spoken about however if you are in a big service provider or facebook one that runs essentially you know a big part of the internet those mistakes can still you know can still happen but this is you know when you're doing this now with automation this is why you know a lot of some of the great tools are available. We'll do a lot of validation for you before you push that configuration, you know, to that device. This is why so many network teams, you know, probably how long ago did I start doing this? Probably sort of seven years ago, started really adopting a DevOps methodology to the way that we did things. And we learned a lot of this from, you know, DevOps teams within the organization I worked in and, you know, the SRE teams that I worked with started to look at how they did a lot of their workflows, a lot of their tour, a lot of their deployments and to see what kind of things and lessons learned that we could um, use within networks to make, you know, the, the networking team, their lives easier, our lives easier. That's super interesting. So like when we talked about DevOps, bringing that into like just machine operations we were looking at things like code reviews and using git to store configs and and those sorts of practices as well as like testing and and other stuff depending on your platform is that what you you saw in networking as well exactly yeah so network devices were made for human eyes human consumption that's what the cli was you know was was made for you know underneath every you know, root as CLI is essentially Linux is running in the background. A lot of vendors, including Cisco, have Linux running, at, you know, in the on the underneath side. Um, and there's, you know, some kind of translation taking place. You know, you take a router has over, I think it's 8 million lines of code running on it, you know, in the background, and it's kind of translated into the, into the command line interface. You know, right, right when I started in network, networking which is probably now like 15 years ago when we save configurations we used a tool called rancid and you know rancid just went in and, and it was just essentially just tftp you know the device oh sure yeah straight the running configuration and essentially what it did was it just issued a bunch of show commands and stored them in a text file and then you know you could have rancid log into your devices and kind of screen scrape you know, these commands, uh, however often you wanted to do them, you know, that could be anything from every minute to every 15 minutes, depending on how, you know, frequently you have changes being made. And then these files would get historic. And then what you do is you jump into your rancid box and then you do just a diff on the configuration files to see what changes were made, you know, and when they were made. And then you would just undo those changes. And that's great, and it did work, and it worked for many, many years. But then when, you know, teams I started working on when we were looking at automation, we started to adopt the DevOps thing. We did exactly what you said. We started to look at storing configurations as machine-readable code instead because device-to-device and vendor-to-vendor, the configurations are different. You know, they're different across different vendor platforms. And they're different across different platforms, say firewalls and switches, you know, they and all load balancers have a different sort of syntax, a different command line structure. So you, you, you kind of have to be an expert or have knowledge of that command line to be able to operate it. But 
How cool is it to store something in machine-readable code which everybody understands, including non-network engineers, SRE or DevOps? They, they understand JSON. They understand YAML. This is, you know, really cool. Or, you know, XML if you're feeling really brave. And <laughs> I've just I've never been an XML reader. To me, it's like looking at Mandarin. It really um, is, yeah. It, it, I, I just, I know what I want to look for. And I just, it just... A couple of minutes of looking at it, and my my mind just scrambles. I've got to have some strong strong coffee in me before I read XML. So we did exactly that. We started using machine readable files as well, because then, and then instead of storing these in Rancid on like a server, you know, or you know, having these on someone's local machine, we had all of our configurations in machine readable code on GitHub, and GitHub then became our source of truth. Mm-hmm. You know, so anytime changes were made, we did exactly what you said. A PR was made against a branch was made, a PR was made, changes were made to that specific file, and we kept everything in files in machine readable format, but we separated it almost by by protocol or by layer. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you know, we had blocks for security, and then blocks for 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 routing, and then blocks for different devices as well. So this meant that you were only changing small portions of text files. You weren't having to sift through lines and lines of, of, of YAML to find a specific area to add additional configuration. You could just go to the file that was for you know VLANs for your switches, and then you know you would just alter the information that you needed in this. And then when the automation ran, it kind of glued everything together as it ran. And as it someone would eyeball that change they would look at it and they would then merge it and then all of those changes is then pushed from the main branch into the production and then you've got this kind of whole pipeline of the change that's been made and all of the metadata that comes with this to be able to identify who's made the change when the change is made what change was made what tests were performed who did the peer review on this, and you've you've kind of built this small sort of pipeline, mm-hmm. and then with like I said, with this being in machine readable things, it gives the ability for other teams to say, "Well, we want to put a PR against this. We want to add additional services into the load balancer. We want to put additional services into the firewall. These rules, because all we're having to do is just update a JSON file, update a YAML file, simple. So then that PR can go off, and then you're kind of you're releasing the network team from being that sort of 800-pound blocker which has copious amounts of JIRA tickets, uh, you know, to sift through for just the kind of the minor, simple, everyday changes, which, you know, should be just able to be done on the fly and doesn't backlog a team for, like, you know, the best part of two weeks while someone gets around to making the change. Yeah, have definitely been there, right? Waiting for firewall requests, waiting for load balancer requests and having that stuff more democratized as it becomes more, like you said, approachable for everybody versus, you know, you must have the magic wand to, to read the, the CLI and figure out which command you need for X, Y, and Z. Like that speeds up everybody's workflow. It does. Like without it, like you, you reach the end of your scalability for the business that you're trying to run. Everybody's sitting around waiting for a handful yeah. of, poor abused network people to get through all these tickets and, and everybody is stopped. So, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't know of any company at all who, 
you know, they expand their global footprint or they expand, you know, their services and then they hire another 10 engineers to be able to do this. It's yeah. It's on, you know, and all of a sudden it's not unheard of to one, you know, to start managing 100 devices with your small team of like three or four. Yeah. And then in two years' time, you're still three or four people and now you've got 300 devices. You know, that's not uncommon in, you know, certainly within this industry. Yeah, definitely have been. Uh, seen plenty of teams where there's a whole lot more work to be done and not a whole lot more people to be hired to to help out on any of that stuff. So as you've been doing this for for so like what's the coolest part of this? Like some of it seems so neat. Like I'm on the outside looking in. Uh, have never really touched big networks. I did my my first job out of college was at UUNet, but like in DSL. So <laughs> yeah. Some of it seems so neat, but also kind of scary. It is. It is kind of scary doing network, you know, changes and things. And, you know, even, you know, when you start as a network engineer, and there was a tweet that came on the other day that somebody that I follow, and they said that they they configured their first BGP peering. And that really took me back to when I configured mine and I was sat there. And even though I'd done this thousands of times in a lab environment, you know, doing it on the real device in the real world. I remember my hands physically shaking while I was doing that. And then as soon as you've made that change, you kind of keep issuing a flurry of show commands to make sure that you're sending the right prefixes and receiving the right prefixes and, you know, everything's working. And there's this kind of a, there's a kind of a slight delay in doing this because, you know, you've got, it's kind of, it's like me giving you a, you know, a book with 200 pages and then how long it takes for you to read that and how long it takes for me to read the book that you give me in return with like, you know, 500 pages or something like that. And how quickly, you know, your device, you know, can scan this and load it into the, into the routing information table or the rib, how quickly it will actually, you know, load it in there, depending on, you know, how big and powerful your device is or, you know, what you're wanting to receive, et cetera. So it's a, it's a kind of a, and there, there's certain changes within within the network world, which aside from BGP, adding VLANs to to switch ports and things and spanning tree, which are the real nerving commands that when you're running, you know, some of those commands, there's such great outages which have been attributed to these and Almost kind of every engineer within their within their timeline has experienced a mistake or an outage from something like that. There comes that kind of when you start to begin to automate these and build these up, um, you kind of start with the low hanging fruit kind of changes, and then you you become a lot more braver as you become more sort of confident with your automation, confident with your validation and confident with your process. It's certainly not one of those things where you, you know, you set out to do all of the changes in the first week. You kind of build it up gradually over a period of time. And sometimes this can go into years before you're, you know, getting even close to having a sort of like a fully automated network. But there's a great feeling, you know, which comes, you know, off the back of that to have you know, automated systems, self-healing um, networks as well, where you can deploy changes at any point in time and you can do it in your production network and your business and your users don't see it. It becomes absolutely seamless. And it is a great feeling to be able to do that. 
And I've done that sat in coffee shops. I've done it on trains. I've done it from hotel rooms. You know, wherever I've got a Wi-Fi connection, it, it became, you know, part of that thing. It's just like, yep, let it run. It's connecting. I can see it. I know. And you've got that. You've got the confidence in there to know that it's going to deploy. If it doesn't deploy, you've got a great rollback plan as well. You know, you're able to pull that back and seeing that, removing that kind of box by box, having to stay late every night to keep doing this out of hours, being able to run this successfully is a great thing to be able to do, especially for years of, you know, firefighting and sort of 2 a.m. changes, being able to make those changes kind of, you know, sat in your shorts or your pajamas with a cup of coffee. (laughs) You know, or optional if it's weekends, no pants at all. Hey, no judgment, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the recurring questions we have on the show is if there are, uh, say, myths about things that you'd want to take a chance of busting. If you have a favorite myth about uh, networking or network outages or, or any of that, that stuff that you can share with us. Yeah, let me think. You know, especially around automation is that you within networking, you can't automate everything. Mm. The other big one is for, you know, for a lot of network, a lot of network, network engineers, certainly when, you know, I started advocating network automation, people thought that, you know, there was a lot of engineering or a lot of rumors within the industry that, you know, automation would see a reduction in headcount. Oh, if only, yeah. You know, the engineers would become redundant or surplus to requirements. But that really, really wasn't the case. Automation didn't take over the jobs in, at all. If, if anything, it increased, it increased it and it made network engineering jobs and automation even more valuable, you know, within the industry. And those engineers, network engineers who had automation skills or some coding, you know, some Python skills, Linux skills certainly did see a, a huge demand within industry for companies wanting to start with automation or, or whom had already started with automation. So I think that was one of the big kind of myths that we saw within, you know, network automation was what the potential impact would be on the industry. And a lot of people saw it as a negative thing. And it really, really wasn't. It was positive. You know, as we know, if you're able to automate something, it kind of frees you up to do the more interesting things. Yeah. You know, because time is money, as they say, and businesses want to make the most out of their staff. And if they have two or three staff just doing simple changes constantly, like being on a Ferris wheel, if you can automate those, it frees their staff up to do such much more cooler things. Like, you know, start to work on better tooling for the network, better visibility, better orchestration, better, you know, monitoring or something, you know, along the board. So it improves the business thing. I think for me, that's the biggest myth that I've come across. Yeah, I I feel like, we had that that same thing on the on the just you know machine operation side of the house. Like people saw it as a threat to to the the jobs they were currently doing. It's like you're not going to have the same job. You're going to have a different job, but you're not going anywhere because you've never gotten through your backlog while you've been slogging through imaging machines by hand and some of this other stuff people love to do. Yeah, exactly, and ex- exactly the same with upgrading you know devices in the same room. Yeah, absolutely. Time-consuming things which should be automated. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that our networking pals are 
are benefiting from all of this stuff as well. Uh, do you have any uh, parting thoughts for folks out there? Do you have any advice for folks who want to get started in network engineering? Um, I think, you know, network engineering has, you know, really changed in the last five years. And, you know, that, you know, five years ago, you used to see, you know, jobs saying, you know, network engineer required and it had this sort of typical network engineering skills, certain protocols, certain platforms. And they, you know, under the sort of like highly desirable, wasn't under even if the desirable, it was under the highly desirable, you know, the little small print at the bottom, you know, Ansible, you know, it would be at the bottom or Bash. And now when you look at network engineering jobs, automate network, network engineer jobs, it's a, it's almost a mandatory now for having those, those skills. That doesn't mean that network engineers have to become coders. Okay. The way that I described, always described the, how much I use Python and how much I use Ansible or even Go was as long as I could do my network engineering job with those tools, that was going to be good enough to be able to, to do those deployments, to, to understand this. As time went by, I became more interested in those, those languages to do other things, you know, to, to perform other things, to build other tools, to do things in the cloud, to, you know, do other, other things for orchestration and, and telemetry and, you know, all of those other things. For me, it was, it was just a case of they were, automation became a great tool to be able to do my job. And I think about it like my father, who was a, a carpenter. And if you think about how my, my father would have started with his tools when he started his trade in the sort of like 60s, he didn't have an electric drill, you know, or an electric hammer or an electric saw or anything like that. But as his career progressed, he got tools to help him do the job. Python and Ansible are those tools. You don't have to understand how they work underneath. It's kind of like, Driving a car, you get in the car, turn the key, put the accelerator. You don't have to understand the combustion engine. If at a later date you want to take apart the combustion engine and understand how it works, great. That's fun experience. Is it necessary? No. That is fantastic advice. Yeah, good. And the other thing, the other thing is the other thing that people ask me, they say, should I use Ansible or should I use Python? I'll say yes. And they'll say, yes, which one? <laughs> It doesn't matter which one you, you just start doing it, start doing it. You know, if you find that you get halfway down the road with Ansible, you think this isn't the tool for me. Great. Switch to Python. If you get halfway down the road with Python, you think, well, this is too hard for me. Maybe I ought to be using Ansible or maybe I ought to be using Telfor. Great. Switch to those. Just start doing it. Start doing it. Awesome. Yeah. Get those concepts in. Well, fantastic. This has been so much fun. Thank you. This is awesome. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you? Are you online? I am. I'm online. I'm on Twitter as um, Big Evil Beard uh, from my two foot beard. And that's also my GitHub ID uh, um, as well. They're the two sort of main places you'll kind of, you know, you'll, you'll find me. Or either than that, anywhere there's coffee, I'm normally there too. That sounds fantastic. Me too. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us this week. Uh, we'll sign off here and we'll wish you an uneventful day. Thank you. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pagertothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter 
at Page It to the Limit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>